0: For far too long we've had the same story about African women in rural areas just you know they bring water from a local river and they wash their kids and that's all they're able to do we're not just sitting around and waiting for someone to come save us we're doing what we can by ourselves if someone is going to help solve the problems in Africa it's going to be an African and I need people to know that women are on the front line
1: Africa
2: is where entrepreneurship development among women is actually more than that of men.
3: Within black and brown communities, it's predominantly women that are creating small businesses and oftentimes they have a kind of social entrepreneurship. It's not just about money. It's not just about the
0: profits we're going to make this year. It's about what we leave behind. These are resilient people. These are people who are not used to just sitting around and waiting for something to wipe them out. We build back. So I think it should serve
4: as a lesson of hope. To really look at Africa as a huge opportunity for growth. I think Africa has a lot of potential that is still to be realised. And Africa surely is not... The adverts that we see of hungry kids with flies on them, it is so much more. And I also think that the diversity that we have on the continent should never be underestimated or packed into the word Africa or African.
5: Then these women are absent from the curriculum, then the global perspective is absent from the curriculum. Really, what you're not teaching becomes part of the hidden curriculum, and it sends message to students that, Women don't matter as much. Other countries don't matter as much. A global perspective doesn't
1: matter as much. I'm Dan of Primary Source, and this is What Teachers Need to Know, African Edition, the podcast that explores current events, history, and culture with an eye towards the complexity and humanity found across this vibrant and diverse continent. The creation of this podcast was made possible through support and collaboration with the African Studies Center at Boston University. Why is it said that the engine of history is fueled by great men? It was in the 19th century that the Scottish thinker Thomas Carlyle said,, quote, "The history of the world is but the biography of great men." End quote." "These words may feel today brittle and quaint." But they also remain harmful. This harm lingers with us and it hasn't disappeared. His story is too often the default starting point when thinking about history, but it doesn't end there. This bias is still culturally dominant when thinking about economics, business, and entrepreneurship. What images flash before us when thinking about women? In Africa, there are countless vibrant ways that African women could come to mind, yet every humane and compelling image is unfortunately forced to compete with stereotypes. When was the last time women were centered and elevated in a truly equitable way? In our historical imaginations, our cultural representations, our acknowledgement of their invaluable role in so many social spaces. Together, we're going to think about African women and their capacity as social entrepreneurs. We'll examine the boldness, creativity, talent, and power demonstrated by women across sectors who are driven to shape their industries and build up their communities. This conversation is going to require us to think about some big concepts like neoliberalism and economic structures. We'll unpack and problematize these big concepts, telling intimate stories along the way. We'll also think about how women adeptly navigate economic structures, wielding the tools at their disposal and bending these very economic, and also political systems that may not always work in their favor. And they do this in order to redefine profit, value, and the social benefits of certain types of entrepreneurship. Through this conversation, we won't carve out space for women. Women have already carved out this space. Instead, we'll see and listen to African women who live and work at the intersection of innovation, social change, and economic empowerment. Because this work is already being done, and we simply need to pay attention to her stories.
6: I'm Professor Adrienne Wallace, and I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Africana Studies at Stony Brook University.
2: My name is Walter Swecker. I'm actually currently in the UK at the moment, but uh, we'll be moving to Rollins College in Orlando to be teaching three courses, financing social entrepreneurship, ethical sourcing, and measuring and reporting social impact. So I've got this passion about social enterprise, passion about entrepreneurship, and actually the power of business in terms of helping people deal with some of the most intractable social issues that communities face today.
1: First, we need to understand the economic climate that surrounds the work women are doing as social entrepreneurs. This requires us to understand neoliberalism. From here, we can appreciate the way women are using neoliberal tools, pushing back against neoliberal assumptions, and thinking about economics and community through lenses that don't start and end with profit alone.
6: Viewing neoliberalism as a process for market integration and for allowing market forces to operate fairly unfettered, limited intervention, because the implicit assumption is that the market itself is unbiased, that it's neutral, and that it tends to produce results that are kind of objective or quote-unquote fair one of the things when we're trying to unpack and kind of dismantle some of these ideas embedded within neoliberalism is to make sure that we're thinking of neoliberalism not only as a set of economic principles, but that we're also thinking about neoliberalism as a method of governance and as a method of policymaking. Specifically in the African context in the 1980s, you had the introduction of what are called structural adjustment programs. This is an approach that was adopted by both the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund as an effort to quote-unquote kind of jumpstart or spur growth in African economies. You saw a weakening of state institutions, an emphasis on privatization, and that became deeply problematic for countries who were trying to rebuild their economies after coming out of periods of colonialism. And so a lot of the damage that happened during this period really kind of set the stage for a lot of the inequality that we're seeing currently if we're going to change that approach and that also requires us to rethink what we mean when we start talking about growth to rethink and really push this model of inclusiveness and sustainability because if the economic revenue that's generated if growth is really inclusive then that means people that have disproportionately been negatively impacted or that have been actually, you know, harmed or disenfranchised from these global systems and global networks. We have to change our approach entirely in order to integrate them and, and pull them back
1: in. So understanding neoliberal policies gives us a sense of the economic backdrop that we need in order to better understand women and empowerment. But what else should we be thinking about in order to really contextualize our understanding of African women and their diverse entry points and experiences as they go about employing their talents?
6: So, not only are there disparities in terms of gender and wages, but also disparities in access to capital. The gender disparities are fairly evident, but it's important to really contextualize those differences by looking at multiple experiences of women. With economic production. So, we want to make sure that we're not treating all women as just a monolithic group, but we're also diving deeper and trying to understand what the differences are in terms of access to resources, the ways in which women show up in particular sectors of the economy, and the different challenges that they're facing. Women are agents of economic development, but they're also agents of thinking creatively about what conceptualizing development really means. And then women also tend to be represented in the entrepreneurial sectors as well. And so then that starts to raise questions about which sectors of the economy women are most visible within.
1: Okay, but just what does economic activity have to do with social good and community empowerment?
6: They're making sure that development and these ideas around economic growth, that it's Inclusive and it's sustainable. Inclusive, meaning it incorporates everyone. The uh, Green Belt Movement, which of course was founded by Wang Mathai, who was the first African woman to receive a Nobel Prize. That organization, a lot of work, very adeptly integrating concerns around green energy production, the environment, income generating activities, and women's livelihoods, and this kind of sustainability models. So I think the Strategies that women have employed that have generated some success, the efforts that they've made to take development as a framework and then redefine it and tailor it based on their own interests and their own needs is certainly a model worth replicating.
1: Let's now hear from some women who are striving to make their work meaningful for this sort of sustainable and inclusive development. We'll start with someone who's working to transform the publishing landscape in South Africa to break silences and expand the cultural spaces available for storytelling.
7: So my name is Tabi Somalabi. I am based in Pretoria in South Africa. I am a person who was crazy enough to not only become a publisher, but to pursue a whole business in publishing. And I own Blackbird Books, which is a publishing platform that at first was meant to be a platform for young Black South African voices, but it has evolved now into trying to become the literary gateway into Africa. The women that have inspired me are my own family. My mother, who passed away when I was 12 years old, came from one of the poorest families that I've ever known. And to remember who they were, because they've all passed on now, my grandmothers, or her aunts, and to remember who they were and how hard they fought in a world that was never designed for their comfort is the first place that I draw my inspiration from. And knowing that wherever I go in the world, I carry them with me, that their names can travel the world and they're not even here
1: How does Tabiso see her social responsibility in the work of publishing?
7: I think that the urgent responsibility now is how do we create an environment that produces more visible Black publishers? I think what it's enabled me to do is enabled me to be in a place where I could bring up a lot more practitioners in this space. Black editors, Black graphic designers, people who were, you know, historically overlooked for roles. The Eternal Audience of One is a debut novel by Remy Ganesha. He's an Namibian, but he came and he studied law at the University of Cape Town. And I'm proud of it because this platform is meant to develop careers, right? To To put people on a platform where they can be discovered by the rest of the world. So the fact that we've taken this young man who did not have a writing career before, but who's now in a new editing process with Simon Schuster's scout press in the U.S. is full circle for me. You must know what problem in the world you want to solve. As a social entrepreneur, my work as a response to what's wrong in society, what is the one problem that you can fix?
1: Let's keep all of this in mind and now learn from another social entrepreneur in Kenya, Charlotte Magai, the founder and CEO of Mukuru Clean Stoves, a social enterprise that designs, produces, and distributes cook stoves for low-income households, reducing toxic household air pollution.
0: What I like talking about most in terms of our operations so or what Mukuru Clean Stoves does on the ground is. Just empowering women to be able to distribute to the last mile energy efficient and, you know, life-saving cookstoves. Our stoves are built to help families reduce about 30 to 60% of fuel consumption. This also means they reduce about 50 to 90% of the toxic smoke emissions for families, which means less toxic smoke inside your home, which means less cases of children getting sick and you having to use up the money that you have earned. To buy medication or treat them.
1: How does Charlotte think about social enterprises and the purpose they serve the broader community?
0: I think a social enterprise. What the simpler meaning for me has always been making profit, but creating impact first. People need to hear the stories, and women in these rural villages need to see the changes that someone is able to make for her family, and even just you know the entire village. It gives hope to those people who feel like maybe because they're women, no one's going to give them a chance. Our secret weapon, which surprisingly no one has been able to hack, is our distribution model, using these women who are the biggest hurt by household air pollution to sell our cook stoves because they understand what the problem is, they understand what they're selling it to you, and they're the best posed to sell it.
1: Charlotte's work addresses her community's needs. She brings her personal experiences, passion for community service, and talents into this work. But what else is she passionate about? And how are these other passions translating into other social enterprises that diversify the work she's doing?
0: Since I love reading so much, this is a fun fact, I am currently in the process of building a library for young kids in in rural areas and hopefully this is a project that I can take all over Africa. I had access to a lot of books and I read a lot, so I want to give that opportunity to young girls and young boys in rural areas. The solutions that are needed on the ground are already there, so find one and support
1: it. So these stories that we've heard so far connect to so many observations about economic empowerment and social enterprise that Adrian and Walter have observed in their research and teaching on African women.
6: The final kind of evaluation of any economic intervention really should be behest of the communities or the populations that are thought to be the beneficiaries. Right? They need to have decision-making control. Entrepreneurship in and of itself can actually be quite beneficial, not just to the individual, but also their community if they are given access to a lot of the resources that are required.
1: Okay, so we've thought about the realities and problems with neoliberalism. We've also heard from Tabiso and Charlotte, whose work exists in the social, political, and economic framework of neoliberalism across Africa. We've seen how they've worked around and confronted the limitations of neoliberalism, at times borrowing from, but in their own ways maybe even subverting, the tools and assumptions of this economic structure. We've also talked about social enterprise, but this could use some more refining. Let's turn to Walter for that. So a social enterprise, put simply, is a business
2: that has been set up to address specific social and environmental issues. But the key difference then between a social enterprise and a commercial enterprise is the fact that a social enterprise is set up to deal specifically with those social and environmental issues, and the profits that it makes are in invested back into the organization so that it develops its capacity and produces more value. But I think very, very important to mention that a social enterprise is a business that should make a profit. So it's not the same as a charitable venture. I think if you look at value in the social enterprise context, it's about those benefits that have got a direct relationship to solving a specific issue. We are now seeing an increase in the development of social entrepreneurship activities in Sub-Saharan as a whole. Sub-Saharan
1: Africa boasts the world's highest rate of female entrepreneurship. So far, we've thought about African women in the abstract and also with a glimpse into the work that Thabiso and Charlotte are doing in South Africa, Kenya, and also beyond. But is this itself Even too narrow? Why not expand our story and find yet another dimension to share? Let's think in a more pan-African way. To do this, we have to include the African diaspora. Let's hear from someone whose work is intercontinental.
3: I'm Rachel Larrier. I am the founder and CEO of Kelo L.A., which is a cultural lifestyle brand reimagining plantains. And I'm also a Ph.D. candidate at Yale University studying Black capitalists in the transatlantic financial industry. Centrally and most importantly, I very much see myself as a storyteller. It's really my plantain love story. It started with me growing up in a very Ghanaian home. I come from a Ghanaian background. Both of my parents were born in Ghana and migrated to the States. Being trained as a cultural anthropologist, I spent a lot of time thinking about this idea of culture. And the culture concept, as anthropologists tend to say. And I had a light bulb moment of, wow, you know, plantains truly in kind of their essence are representative and symbolic of the African diaspora. And you can take this food item as a way of thinking about cultural reproduction.
1: How does Rachel think about her work in a pan-African context?
3: Kwame Nkrumah. Ghana's first president. He once said, "I am not African because I was born in Africa. I'm African because Africa was born in me." I think that that's something that it's a sentiment that I hold dear, and as diasporan, I feel very strongly about. Because while I was not born there, I have my whole entire narrative around my own African, specifically Ghanaian identity and what that means because it's central to how I live my life today, so much so that I've created a whole business really focused on it.
1: What does Rachel have to say about her work and her responsibilities to her community?
3: We're really focused on Black and brown communities. And when we talk about responsibility, it's one to celebrate and showcase African superfoods that have always been a staple to us, but it has not occupied kind of mainstream real estate within the food industry, that's a particular responsibility. I think also it's really important for us to really create products that are accessible to the community. To be able to tell stories that speak to what this one food item could mean to one person, two people, whoever, in different parts of the world, I think that's really profound and incredible. And so it inspires someone, I would hope, to look at that food item differently. The next time you're in the grocery store and you see plantains, you can think about all the different ways in which it can mean something to somebody.
1: Already, we've heard from women in South Africa, Kenya, and Brooklyn, whose work is making publishing more equitable improving air quality and public health, and making Ghanaian culture and identity more prominent in the United States. Let's now hear from someone who's in the vanguard of her industry in Nigeria, whose work in technology is yet another reminder of how varied and widespread her stories are.
4: Hi, my name is Nkemdida Mwajebeo, and I'm the CEO of FutureSoft. FutureSoft is an IT service company in Lagos, Nigeria, in Africa, and we focus on digital marketing and digital transformation consultancy services. I've been able to become more and more resilient, which has definitely helped me in terms of just understanding that, you know, entrepreneurship is about ups and downs. It's a roller coaster. It's not always going to be fun and nice. There's going to be a lot of downhill spirals that you can get into and a lot of lessons that you can learn. But I wouldn't choose any other path because it also gives you a lot of control and freedom. So I sort of decided to make it my mission to put African businesses on the map and give African businesses a voice and start telling their stories. And we're really, really excited to sort of see more and more companies on the continent embark on their digital journeys and really try and open up additional opportunities for themselves, tell their brand stories, which I think is really important because there are not enough positive African stories out there. And I think that the work that we do is one way of really amplifying those positive stories. Impact is something that's really important to me and every single thing that I do has to have impact in order for it to make sense. I also think that it's really in Nigeria specifically I've been able to also contribute to shaping the technology ecosystem through policy, through mentoring and through just ensuring that people have opportunities to participate in this ecosystem. And that in itself is rewarding when you have young girls come up to you and they say, I studied computer science because you gave a career talk at my school. I think that makes me know that the work that I do and the time that I put into ensuring that I impact other people is worth it. I think for me, the social implications really are focused on how do we ensure that the narrative changes and how do we also ensure that we're able to build employment and build talent on the continent. Last year, started a new business called Skill Up Africa, which is focused on building out and financing the talent development pipeline across the continent. And that really is a social enterprise. And I would say in that case, I am a social entrepreneur because it's really focused at how do you build a sustainable talent pipeline for the continent? So Skill Up Africa is a platform where we crowdfund student loans. The student loans are given to people who are not able to actually afford these trainings, and they are then able to enroll into partner training institutes that we have partnerships with to take those trainings. The courses are fully paid for.
1: There is no short supply of stories of African women and empowerment that deserve wider and more sustained recognition. We've only just started to reveal the wealth of examples of how African women are driven, successful, and agents of economic and social change. Entrepreneurship is only one way that this happens. It's not the only way. Her story exceeds this conversation around neoliberalism and the way women harness its tools, challenge its assumptions, and do so in ways that add value to their communities. So as we continue thinking about the stories we've heard already and the many more that we can and will continue to tell, let's also think about classrooms and the spaces and schools that can become much more representative of the stories that we've told here and the ones we haven't even touched upon yet. Let's now hear from two teachers, Kayleen Stevens and Taylor Collins, to hear about how they're making their classrooms more inclusive spaces.
5: Currently, I'm a lecturer in the teaching and learning department at Boston University. Before I was at BU, I was a public school teacher at Framingham High School for 14 years. I currently teach at Framingham High School.
8: I've been there for 10 years.
1: We've focused on African women as social entrepreneurs and empowered agents of change. Is this how women tend to appear in the social studies curriculum? I
5: would say that women historically in the social studies classroom has been underrepresented and misrepresented. I saw a lot of it
8: as side notes or sidebars. Like we would flip the page and there would be a small little excerpt about
5: a woman and what she did. Women are just not included as the main narrative in history. And then when they are there, they tend to be shed light in supporting roles. I think when we display women in text and sources as supporters or as valued for their beauty or their appearance, we're sending messages to young women that these are the roles that women should have.
1: If we're going to challenge dominant narratives in schools, what can we imagine as more just and robust representations?
5: This looks like a complete overhaul, like a curriculum rewrite where the women's story is just as prevalent, showing women as resistors, as fighters, as leaders, as doctors and entrepreneurs and all sorts of roles that are not traditionally considered feminine roles. The socialized classroom, classrooms in school is one of our main agents of socialization. So when we start teaching students from a young age all the way up through high school, that women are equal in society and that they can be seen in many, many lights. We are giving women empowerment and voice to take those roles.
8: The one thing that really is sticking out to me is this idea of showing women in power and women breaking these like old gender norms.
1: If we're focusing on powerful women, does that come at the expense of having a hard reckoning with inequality? And even stories of oppression by celebrating are we actually turning away from hard history if you're really teaching from a gender equitable
5: stance you're teaching the fact that women have historically been oppressed and you're looking at the systems so these systems are really important and by showing students that there has been a historical context of oppression then what we're really doing is we're helping them understand why there is inequity today for women and understanding that and then helping them think about how to overcome that inequity.
8: One of our major themes we talk a lot about is resistance. And this would be kind of a cool, awesome way to bring in resistance that continues today, but how different forms it is. So this form of resistance is going against and getting into entrepreneurship when all history and maybe even social issues have kind of kept women out of that.
1: We've focused on African women today. This has been intersectional in nature, thinking about race, gender, location, and economics. But what is this term, intersectionality? And how can it be a helpful framework so that we avoid telling only one story about women, about Africa, and in the process, tokenizing how we think about women in Africa.
5: We have all these different social identities. And historically, some identities have been valued more than others. White male identities, for instance. So when you are a woman and you're a woman of color, there could be many intersectionalities going on with your social identity in many different ways that your oppression could be layered. If we can have our students see Africa as a source of strength, and the women in it as empowered and as resistors and fighters and leaders and entrepreneurs, then we're not just showing this group of women as oppressed, but also how they have fought for change over time. The media loves to
8: show one picture of a woman in Africa, and she's got
5: Multiple kids around
8: her, they're starving, or she's carrying like a water jug on her head. It's been really fascinating to read and learn new history when you've been taught and realize that you've been taught in a Eurocentric or colonized kind of view of history.
1: As history and social studies teachers, there's a lot of work to do in order to decolonize the curriculum. There's no one starting point for this work, it's comprehensive, it's a long term endeavor. It's also intersectional. By telling stories of women, African women, empowered women, entrepreneurial women, talented and compassionate women, we're chipping away at the great man theory and replacing it with something else. Something where all of our students can find wisdom, where they can find inspiration, and they can encounter in schools a more egalitarian way of knowing about the social world that they inhabit, and that's found throughout the globe. That's it for today's episode. What Teachers Need to Know Africa is a production of Primary Source, an education nonprofit dedicated to bringing the world into classrooms through professional development and curriculum. To learn more about Primary Source and to explore our podcasts and other resources in further depth, visit www.primarysource.org. Thanks to the African Study Center at Boston University, whose support and collaboration made the creation of this podcast possible. To learn more about the center, visit www.bu.edu/slash Africa. And to learn more about the Center's Teaching Africa Outreach Program, visit www.bu.edu slash Africa slash outreach. I'm Dan from Primary Source. Thanks for listening.